You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. I mean, I, I think there's a couple reasons here why Centenese has forgotten. We don't celebrate compromise. We don't celebrate compromise that has imperfect results. It was the world's largest mirror, said an observer of the gleaming skyscraper representing the new world governing body that sits on the east side of New York's Manhattan Island, built on the remains of torn down slaughterhouses. Powerful types involved, Robert Moses, the builder of New York, and John D. Rockefeller. Moses gets Rockefeller to buy the 17-acre lot. It could have been in San Francisco. It could have been in Philadelphia. There was even this fantastic idea that the location of the UN would be in its own place near nothing else at all, that it might be built the UN headquarters in South Dakota, giving a real feeling to the actual sovereignty that the building has over its local jurisdiction. That didn't work for the world's diplomats. It had a short time in Queens, even a little time in the Bronx. But Rockefeller's gifts of $8.5 million in land to the budding world government organization helped certainly to make its decision. And it's not just the ruined meatpacking shops that the headquarters of the world was built on. Everything about the United Nations has to be seen in the context of the League of Nations that Woodrow Wilson dreamed of and did not get the United States to enter Wilson isn't winning a lot of popularity polls in 2021, but if you put yourself in 1943, he was seen as visionary, prescient of what he tried to do, and the man in the White House was an admirer of his. I mean, he had a portrait of Wilson in, in the White House that he looked to both as an inspiration, I want to fulfill what Wilson was unable to do, uh, a League of Nations, and a reminder how Wilson screwed it up. That's Bill Sher, journalist, podcaster. His new podcast, When America Works, looks at pragmatists. And we're going to talk to him today about a man, Edward Statenius Jr., who had a lot to do with the formation of the United Nations, but you don't hear his name that much. One thing was clear, though. The United Nations was to be more successful than the League of Nations. First thing FDR does is make sure that there's world cooperation. The Moscow Declaration is clear that there should be an international conference, the Quebec conference says there should be a world international organization coming out of the war as early as 1943. 
internally in the United States, it's not going to fall victim to what happened with Woodrow Wilson, squabbles between the Republican Senate and a Democratic president. By 1943, the Republican Party, as well as the Democratic Party, endorsed the idea of an international organization that could solve problems before you get to war. We don't have world wars anymore. Our our global uh, ca- war casualty ratio relative to the global population is, is way down since World War II and the creation of the UN. I heartily agree with Bill Scher here. He thinks, as I do, of the unbalance of the United Nations as a historic achievement. Now, of course, they don't solve every problem in the world, uh, not even not by a long no. shot. So there's a lot of dissatisfaction. There are criticisms of the UN, to be sure. Certainly one of them that stings is that there are now many more members of the UN that represent autocratic countries that don't have democracies, where this organization started as a stand against Nazism. They only allowed members who had declared war on the Axis powers. You know, North Korea gets a vote equal to the Netherlands. That equal voting in the United Nations sets up something there. On the other hand, the unequal system of the Security Council, where the actual weaponry of the UN could be mustered, is on the other side a little anti-democratic. You put UK, France, China, US, USSR in this elevated status that freezes them in time from where they were in the world in 1952. You know, and some of its ventures have not been successful. It hasn't always stood up. Its success has been mixed, and you can rightly criticize it. But that criticism, to me, doesn't rise to the level of this organization having no benefit whatsoever. We're going to talk today about the United Nations, how it was formed in its ideation, and that involves struggles. And there was a person there pushing those compromises, and he was an obscure Secretary of State, who got to the job through an absolute quirk, who didn't have the ultimate confidence of the president who would indeed end up working for, and has never gotten credit in history. Until perhaps now. Maybe journalists like Bill Scher and this program can spread the word a little more. Hey, I'm here with Bill Scher. He is a journalist and also the host now of When America Worked, which I, I find this really interesting. But thanks for coming on, Bill. Great to be with you. It's an honor. Now, When America Worked, the, the aim here is that we're talking about pragmatists. That's right. Uh, and I, I feel like pragmatism as a philosophy is definitely uh, not in vogue. <laughs> I, I think a lot of history that we're teaching ourselves is coming through on social media Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of self-selection what gets spread around social media it's not always accurate or it's often oversimplified and it's pushed by people with ideological motivations and so there's not a lot of people digging into the great moments of pragmatism people don't have an interest in in highlighting and explaining those stories, and those stories are getting lost if they were ever even known in the first place. Oh, I mean, I can recall the the 90s are looking like a golden <laughs> era of <laughs> political communication, which is crazy when you think about the Clinton right. times and when people thought this is unprecedented. We've never had uh, sex scandals with a president <laughs> like this and all this discussion about the president's private life and people being nasty before. It's never happened, and it will never be worse than this. Well, 
you know, and people will never be more partisan because I guess the Republicans were just wanting Clinton to win and Clinton was just letting the Republicans win. I, I, I don't know where that nonpartisan period happened. The other thing that I, I, I should say to that is I think also in the 90s, like when you entered a real room and you had to discuss politics and in a room, you know, you'd, those, that filter would happen when you can use social media to change who's in the room and arrange to have specific people in a room at a specific time. It can give you a great inkling that your ultra view is wonderful. Yeah, we're, we're definitely siloing our, ourselves more. I mean, there was always partisan media, as you well know, of course. Uh, I mean, the golden age of, uh, 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 heterodoxical ideology is, is probably pretty small in the annals of American history. Uh, but I think our ability with social media to silo ourselves very tightly, very quickly, and tell ourselves stories of history that, you know, miss a lot of pieces and leave a lot of stories off the table, I, I think is warping our ability to, to figure out what is possible. What can we do as a country? You know, how, how do people work across the aisle or, or use the levers of, level, levers of executive power in a way that uh, is durable and sustainable. Uh, and so I'm just trying to dig through, uh, dig through the shelves and find those stories that are, that are getting lost and picking them back up. Now, one of them is uh, Stentenius, a forgotten Secretary of State. I'll just say forgotten because even for me, you know, don't think of him much. But you've, you've done a whole podcast on When America Worked on him. So this is Edward Stettinius. He was FDR's second Secretary of State and Truman's first. And if you read a book about FDR or read a book about Truman, Stettinius is usually a footnote, mm -hmm. uh, often sort of waved away as a lightweight who uh, didn't do much or did things that were not good. <laughs> uh, and what is totally lost in almost everything you read about him is he played a singular role in the creation of the United Nations. And it's a role that was lightly regarded in his day, let alone, you know, in modern times where he's, where he's completely forgotten. And in my view, and this is the reason why I started the podcast with his story, I, I feel like this is the greatest distance between done most good for the world and least amount of public recognition that I can think of. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's very illustrative, not just in how things get done, but what stories get retold and how, how people are judged in their time. You know, this, this is a cabinet position. And if he was up, if he was nominated for a cabinet post today, he would get dragged as completely <laughs> in over his head, right. uh, and may not even get confirmed because he, he lacked the proper experience. And yet he, he actually had the right personal attributes for the position he was in at the time, even though nobody, probably not even FDR, recognized it when he was picked. He would not have even been put in if it was not for a 1940 sex scandal. Well, that's one of the fascinating things about it. I, I should just say, you know, my podcast is heavily reliant on on two books. Mm -hmm. uh, one is Act of Creation by Stephen Schlesinger, which is uh, about the founding of the United Nations, and another one which is even more academic, uh, by uh, Thomas Campbell called Masquerade Peace. And Thomas Campbell also edited or co-edited the Satinius Diaries. Uh, so I, I think Campbell, before he passed away, was actually planning to do a standalone biography on Satinius and never, never got to finish. If you want to know about Satinius, those are basically the two places you have to go. And I think it's touched upon in Schlesinger's book, but it's not going to great detail. This incident 
where FDR's undersecretary of state, Sumner Wells, he was working below FDR's first secretary of state, Cordell Hull. And Hull and Wells did not get along. They were totally different characters. Hull was, you know, a, a political in, uh, a legislative insider, mm-hmm. uh, Southern conservative, you know, ran for president, was considered to be a possible vice presidential choice for FDR. And FDR had him there as a liaison to the Southern Democrats. Wells was from FDR's social circles in, you know, uh, upper class Manhattan, went to the same schools as FDR. They knew each other when they were young. FDR helped him uh, work his way up through the diplomatic ranks. So Wells had this fantastic diplomatic resume and FDR looked to him for diplomatic counsel in a way he and he did not give Hull the same level of deference and and respect. And when the U.N. project falls in their laps this is before Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. They're not on the same page. Could we go into that? So, so it's before Pearl Harbor. Is that uh, so? FDR was already thinking about this. I, I mean, I know That's he right. was a, you know, he's a Wilsonian at heart, and That's right. um, uh, so you know, he League of Nations on the mind. I mean, he had a portrait of Wilson in in the White House that he looked to both as inspiration. I want to fulfill what Wilson was unable to do, uh, a League of Nations. And a reminder how Wilson screwed it up, that he, he was too partisan at the end of the day, perhaps because the effects of uh, the, uh, of the stroke that he perhaps had even before the big stroke, <laughs> that maybe it affected his mental acuity. Uh, so he wasn't being as flexible as he might have otherwise have been. Uh, whatever the reason was, he, he was not reaching across the aisles uh, sufficiently to get the support he needed to ratify the treaty. So FDR was thinking about how do I work across the aisle? How do I fulfill Wilson's vision? Let's let's get in on this early before the, the time is really ripe. He, he knew it wasn't the public was was clamoring for at the time. Uh, I mean, the public barely wanted to get into the war in the first place until Pearl Harbor. So they start this work. Hull wants a more centralized UN where the U.S. has a lot of power, and Wells is thinking more global, more globally. They have regional organizations, so all these different spheres of the world have have more of a say. Hull thinks that's uh, too cumbersome, and Wells is going around Hull and talking to FDR directly, and and Hull is upset that that he's getting sidelined when he's Secretary of State. Now, Wells in 1940, this is the fall of 1940. It's an election year, and the Speaker of the House dies, who's another Southerner, William Bankhead. There was some other death that happened uh, around 1938, if I recall, 37, 38, that FDR didn't go to. And this is around the whole court packing thing. And he alienated a lot of Southern Democrats by not showing his respect. And so FDR realized, I, I shouldn't do that at a second time in an election year. I'm going to go. My cabinet's going to go. We're all going to go on the train to Alabama and take part in this funeral. And Hall was much older than Wells and often sick. And so Hall was sick. He says, Sumner, you go in my place. Wells is on the train back from the funeral after midnight. He's roaring drunk and he's sexually propositioning the African-American male rail car porters on the president's train. Now, this is not modern day. This is there's no Internet. There's no TMZ. So it's not instant news, but it is the president's train. There is gossip. There's still gossip in 1940. And so words trickling around that this happened. 
So no, number one, it, it gets to J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI, and so he looks into it. It gets to a crony of of Hull's named William Bullitt, uh, who was ambassador to the Soviet Union, ambassador to uh, France, if I recall, and wanted Wells's job. And so Hall and Bullitt are working together to spread this around, get it to other people in Washington, get it to the media and see if they can force Wells out. Uh, when Bullet brings this to FDR directly, FDR waves him off and says, you know, so what if he does that? You know, so what if he does that when he's drunk? You know, because FDR was still very tight with Wells and he, he wanted to keep a lid on it, but he wasn't eager to, to push him out. Uh, and it wasn't until 1943 when the tensions between Hull and Wells were rising around, around the UN. Uh, this starts leaking into the press and F and Hull realizes he has an opportunity to really twist the knife. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com, code SUPER24. How does it leak in, you know, at that point in that year, is it just like little sly hints that reporters are talking about or they actually start getting into details? There wasn't anything in the press about the sex scandal, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but there was, there was, there was leaks about the tensions between Hull and Wells. And also, do you think that, um, Hull, although conservative, and of course you have to be representing that district in Tennessee at that time, do you think that he really is perturbed by wells and the lifestyle or the behavior or is it hey i got a chip and i can use it in politics i think it's both mm. but i mean, I mean clearly you know, this is 1943 this is not a this is not a heyday of, uh, of gay rights so when when bullet and hall go to fdr and say this guy's a blackmail risk this guy's a degenerate this mm. guy is uh no better than, than a communist I, i'm sure there was a lot of uh, belief behind those those sentiments as well as you know raw politics mm -hmm. So Hull basically goes to FDR and say, look, you know, you get rid of him or I quit. FDR has to uh, conclude if this gets out of hand, this might well get into the press. They, they, they know about this. And if Hull leaves in a huff, he can talk. And so uh, FDR says, OK, I got to ease Wells out. He offers him a lesser post. Wells says, forget it. You know, I'm cooked. I'm just going to throw in the towel. And so at that point. FDR wants someone in that position. He doesn't want a bullet. He doesn't want a guy who's been conspiring against him. He wants someone who's going to be a yes man. Mm -hmm. And now Statinius, now here's Statinius, who is at this point the chair of U.S. Steel. He's the son of Edward Statinius Sr., who uh, Ron Chernow once called the father of the military industrial complex because Statinius Sr. in the Wilson administration was on the War Industries Board and, and he was tasked with getting private industry to crank up the war machine in the advance of World War I. So similarly, before America got in the war, this, the British and the French came to the American companies and, and asked them to do this, and Wilson kind of gave them the wink-wink. Uh, and, and, then, and then later, um, the senior senior actually becomes part of the Wilson administration, so he's credited with building the war machine. You know, his father grows up in the Gilded Age. J Junior grows up in the Progressive Era, mm -hmm. and Junior is has much of a progressive bent. 
He's doing progressive things in college. He's trying to do employment programs. And he gets a job at General Motors through his father. But there he's still being kind of progressive. He's coming up with um, uh, big employment, uh, employee insurance programs and the like. He tries to have a program for subsistence homesteads uh, during in the early days of the Great Depression. And FDR is looking for liberal millionaires to be part of his administration who, who, who were available for for the work. And so Satinius has caught his eye. And so early in the administration, he's tasked to help fight the depression, to help partner the federal government with big business to tackle the economy. And so he, he gets that initial government service uh, on his resume. So it's GM to the federal government and then to U.S. Steel. And then, so when you're chair, you are still, you're one of the biggest industrialists in the world. Then the war breaks out. The Lend-Lease program starts. This is again, this is again before Pearl Harbor, but mm-hmm. we're helping the British uh, with weaponry. And Satinius is tasked to manage that program. Uh, so that's the closest he has to anything foreign policy related at this point. He's still generally a, a, a corporate honcho. And so to give him undersecretary of state, second in command of the State Department with no real diplomatic experience, it was widely assumed FDR just wants a yes man. Uh, it doesn't and doesn't want to royal the waters of the State Department after what Wells and, and Hull were going through. And it's only after so so Hull. So at this point we're in 1943. It's the onset of Dumbarton Oaks, which was the first big multinational conference about what the UN is going to look like, what the principles are going to be, uh, the initial work on the charter. Uh, Hull is sick again, and so Zetinius has the job of managing that conference, and the press doesn't treat him very well. They, they think he's out of his out of his league. He has some press conferences. They're kind of bumbling. The press doesn't get a lot of access to the proceedings, and they're mad about that. But soon after that, Hull is sick of FDR not listening to him, and he quits altogether. And Hull was is the longest-serving Secretary of State ever. This is more than two terms, 11 years. Well, yeah, it helps if uh... – FDR probably, uh, you know, is like doing part yeah, of that job like, when he wants exactly, to. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. In New Jersey, there's a city, uh, Union City. This is one of these tangents, but I'll, I'll, but, uh, we have this city, Union City, and it's known to have this mayor, and he is just a, the guy must be, never sleep. He does everything. If you move in and you're a new resident, he's at your door. Old fashioned machine type mayor. So the people that are his business manager, you know, is trying to find a job somewhere else, and everyone's like, we're not gonna, we're not gonna hire you, man. You don't, we know you didn't do any work. If you're working, for, if you're working for, for Mayor Stats, you didn't do any work. He did it. <laughs> I, I, I gotta, I gotta tone that in a little bit with FDR, but there's, there's some of that present. When he, when he cared about an issue, he was gonna be the one, you know, making a call. Oh, and in fact, when, so when Hulk quits and Statinius is bumped up, I mean, barely in the job of Undersecretary of State, uh, before this happens, uh, and, uh, and the press concludes the real Secretary of State is going to be FDR. It's not going to be Statinius. He, mm. he never had, mm-hmm. even within the State Department, they thought he was, uh, Dean Acheson uh, said he had gone far with comparatively modest equipment. You know, he was just, it wasn't thought as an intellectual, as a bright person. But he's, he's immediately thrust into this big controversy. And this, and this, and this comes to, this initially manifests at Dunbarton Oaks, but it's kept quiet. It's not in the press yet. Uh, what is the veto power of the UN going to look like? How powerful 
will the U.S., the Soviet Union, the U.K., China, you know, what what uh, power will they have over the rest of the world? Uh, and the big controversy was, what do you do when there is a dispute and one of the big four is a party to the dispute? Do they have veto power over what the U.N. does at that point? And the Soviet Union did not want to take away their veto power in those circumstances because then the capitalist countries could steamroll the lone communist country. And they couldn't resolve that dispute at Dunbar and Oaks. Satinius makes the call to say, look, we got to punt on this because at that point there was a compromise that was forged by um, uh, someone else in the State Department. But uh, FDR, Churchill, Stalin, they all disagree on the compromise. So they punt it. It gets taken to Yalta, and Satinius is the guy that has to sell a compromise, which basically is if it's a non-military dispute, you can't veto. If it's a military-related dispute, you can. So you don't lose your sovereignty mm-hmm. through using military power. And that was the first big – So you have the Security Council today that uh, you can sort of see that being formed in embryo. Well, that's exactly what it is. I mean, this is the Security Council being mm-hmm. hatched. What does the Security Council look like and what powers do they have? Uh, and one of the reasons why I got into this, this whole subject is when you think about the UN, and this might, maybe it's mm-hmm. a, a larger digression we can or cannot go down. Uh, but I think the average person, when they think of the UN, it, it just happened. You know, World War II ended and the UN happened. Every, everyone agreed it was a good idea and it happened. Uh, and it just was not that simple. There were, there were a lot of diplomatic snags along the way. Uh, and it's very possible that the UN would not have happened, couldn't, would have felt, had the same fate as the League of Nations. And there are several points where you can say Satinius is the person that resolved these crises. And if it was not him, if Cordell Hall did not quit, they had different views on, on one particular thing, and that is the role of Argentina, which I'm happy to get into. Argentina was a, a Nazi-adjacent country in World War II, and there was a question whether they would be part of the UN or not. And Cordell Hall and Satinius vehemently disagreed on this point because uh, Satinius worked to get Argentina in, and Hall w- was adamantly that th- they should not get in. If Hall stuck to that view as Secretary of State, we may not have had a UN. Who was for Argentina? Was it? Um, it couldn't have been Russia, or, no, or could no. it have been? It must have been the other Latin American countries. Well, exactly. So at Yalta, so they're they're at Yalta. They're having a a negotiation. Who who gets votes? Who gets votes in the UN? And the Soviet Union was saying, "Hey, look, we we want uh, we 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 want White Russia, which is now Belarus, and we want the Ukraine, which is now Ukraine. We 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 should get these two extra votes." And FDR was reluctant to do that, but the British were sympathetic. The British, said, well, you know, we have Canada, we have Australia, you know, they're part of our Commonwealth. I, I get where the Soviet Union's coming from. They should they should get a couple too, even if they're not really free, independent countries. Then FDR said, "Okay, but I want to. I think we should get the Latin American countries in also." And Stalin said, well, not Argentina. There's no way we're in Argentina. And so the agreement was if if by early March they had declared war on one of the two Axis powers uh, or, or, or if Germany or Japan, if they declared war on one of them uh, and they recognized the Soviet Union, then they could be part of the initial UN conference. And Stalin said, that's fine. Just not Argentina. Uh 
So Yalta, they, they agree to have the San Francisco conference, which was the big final conference where all the countries come together and they work at all the T's, they cross all the T's and dot the I's on the, on the final charter. In between those points is a Mexico City conference, which is just the Latin American countries. And America bigfoots and says, Argentina, you can't be part of this. But the other Latin countries are whispering, Hey, Argentina, we, we want you in. We want to, we want to be unified hemispherically. So. When Satinius gets to Mexico City, and this is another big part of the story, Satinius is beginning to get surveillance from what we now know as the NSA. Uh, at the time, it was the United States Army Signal Security Agency. Uh, and this is one of the few documented instances of peacetime diplomatic surveillance that, that we have. Uh, and that was actually uncovered by Stephen Schlesinger. And he reported on it before he wrote the book, Active Creation, and it's included in great detail in Active Creation. So he's getting intelligence from uh, from the, the pre-NSA that these Latin American countries are very determined to get Argentina in. They're talking amongst themselves how to do it. There is a disagreement what would it take to get Argentina in. Uh, and so once he arrives in Mexico City, he cables FDR and said, this Argentina situation is boiling. We got we to gotta find a way. To get them in. Otherwise, if the Latin American countries aren't on board and they walk out of the process, we don't get a UN. There's some other aspects of the story. I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but you know, long story short, uh, they eventually get Argentina to agree to declare war on Germany and Japan. And Argentina was balking at that. So it took some cajoling to get to make them come around. And that made America recognize Argentina and the UK recognize Argentina, but the Soviet Union still held off. And this is right before the San Francisco conference begins. So it becomes a major sticking point at the front end of the San Francisco conference. How do we deal with Argentina? And Satinius is the person that has to navigate that thicket. As he's doing these things, we're not reading about or are we reading about uh, Stantinius, the the, ma- the the master broker, like we would today about a about a Schultz or a James Baker or something like that? You know, if they they do well, I say today, <laughs> we would in modern times hear about things like that. Or or uh, you heard about it, but not in a very favorable light. Mercatinius is still mm-hmm. not a highly regarded person. Uh, <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And he doesn't have a PR agency. Do you have any sense of, and you don't have to, but if, do you have any sense of, um, is it by accident because he's, there's low expectations or is it, um, he's just not the type of person to, to start leaking to reporters? Uh, I don't, I, I think he had interaction with reporters, but they generally, they, they had a bad image of him from the get go after Dunbar and Oaks. He never really recovered from that. He, he didn't have like a go to person who was, you know, the, the Stettinius cheerleader in the press, as far as I know. Uh, and now this is another important point. Right before the San Francisco conference, FDR dies and Truman ascends. Now, Truman also someone not highly regarded by a lot of people. 
uh, had barely been vice president at this point uh, and wasn't part of FDR's inner circle, wasn't in the meetings. He, he was playing cards at the Senate the, the evening that FDR dies. He's called back to the White House. And, uh, and one of my favorite anecdotes is he gets to the White House and he's told, you know, he's with the other uh, inner circle and Eleanor is there and he's told this and Truman is floored and he goes to Eleanor. He's like, what, what, you know, what can I do for you? And she's like, the question is, what can we do for you? Because you're the one in trouble now. <laughs> and the first decision Truman has to make that night is, do they go forward with San Francisco or not? And this was an open question at the time because the Soviet Union were not being good buddies. <laughs> they were steamrolling Poland and steamrolling Romania. And America was wondering, do we have a real partner here? Uh, do we have something we can govern the world with? If, we're, mm -hmm. if they're not going to uh, allow these countries to be free and independent, maybe this whole thing's not going to work. But Statinius was somebody who wanted to go forward. And so he, he as Secretary of State, at this point, he's second in command. He's second in line of succession. It wasn't um, uh, uh, it, you know, it was President, VP, Secretary of State, not Speaker of the House at this point. They, they got changed soon afterwards. So with no VP, it's Truman Statinius. Uh, and Statinius gets Truman uh, basically alone. I think there are a couple of people in the room. And could say to him, you got to decide this right now. And my recommendation to you is that we do go forward. And Truman says, you know, whatever you say goes. Uh, and Statinius says, well, let's say we're going to do this at, uh, at the president's uh, declaration. And Truman says, yep, good with me. And so to Statinius, it seems like, hey, we're, we're, we're on good terms here. We're going to start off this relationship, you know, in a, in a real respectful place. But immediately, Truman goes to a guy named Jimmy Burns, who had been on the Supreme Court, was the director of the, uh, I think, Office of War Mobilization under FDR and had such power in that position that he was often called assistant president. And Burns wanted to be FDR's VP in 1944. And Truman was going to nominate Burns, but then all the party poobahs uh, engineered it for Truman to get it and box Burns out. Uh, and Truman felt bad. So Truman had a couple of things. One, he thought he felt bad for Burns. Uh, two, he thought someone who had experience in an elected office and Burns had that should be in line of succession. And Statius didn't have that on his resume. And three, he thought he thought Satinius was an idiot. He he told a biographer later that Satinius was as dumb as they come. He had no respect for these these wealthy millionaires. Uh, they were called the tame millionaires at the time. He thought those guys were lightweights, and he wanted to box them out. But he didn't have the wherewithal to do it immediately, and he still dispatches Satinius to go to San Francisco and run point there. But the rumors that Satinius' days are numbered are hovering over him. So he doesn't have a lot of respect from the press corps. And when you and I won't tell the entire story here, but you can get it obviously in the in the podcast. When they get to the point where Satinius basically strong arms the Argentina issue, uh, he forces an up or down vote, even though the Soviets are opposed to it, marshals his numbers in his favor and just wins it on an up or down vote. Uh you know, a, 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 a figure who had more respect in the public and the press might get lauded that he beat the Soviets. 
But instead, the press was like, this is immoral. This is not how you know, global governance should go. This is a this is a straight power game like the Soviets are doing w- with Poland. This is nothing to to uh, to uh, laud. Uh, so he never got credit for the deals that he made at the time, even though they all they all worked out. I mean, even though he did strong on the Soviets, they didn't they didn't walk. You know, they could they Soviets could have said, "Screw this, I'm out of here." Maybe the fact that the press wasn't, you know, lauding uh, Stentinius, uh actually helped. Uh, I mean, maybe uh, it, it, at minimum, it didn't it didn't shake his confidence. Didn't didn't embarrass the Soviets. Yeah, the Soviets felt word. like they were they were winning in the press war. Uh, and in fact, you, you actually can read if you can actually Google uh, and get the New York Times copy of the day mm-hmm. when so uh, it's Molotov who was the Soviet diplomat who was doing most of the uh, politicking in San Francisco, uh, namesake of the Molotov cocktail, and he was known as a very very uh, uh, hard nosed negotiator and operator. He's he's portrayed very differently in the movie Death of Stalin, but at, at this time uh, in San Francisco, he's known as a tough customer, and he holds court. And he basically mocks, sarcastically mocks the Americans. You talk all this great game about democracy. Now you're letting in this, this fascist country into, uh, uh, into the UN. You know, you guys are total hypocrites. Meanwhile, this is all a game on Molotov's part to try to get Poland into the UN, even though it had become a Soviet satellite, not an independent country. And Americans very much wanted Poland to be, to be independent and democratic. Molotov is successfully blurring the issue in the eyes of the press and the public, where the media is praising Molotov and saying, yeah, he really got Satinius' number on that one. He, he made some really good points there. Whereas if you read the copy today, you would say this is the same kind of disingenuous gaslighting that we see coming out of you know, the Putin government today. Uh, but at the time, the, pre- the press had such a low regard for Satinius that they, they largely gave the, so- the Soviet argument a lot of credence. Okay, so we're um, a reminder, guys. We're talking to Bill Share, who's the podcast host of When America Work. Now, what I want everyone to do, we've been telling a lot of the story, and Bill has a penchant for detail. Um, so there's two things I'm going to point you to. One, you got to go to When America Worked and listen to this. It's 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 a really detailed exploration of Edward Stentinius and this story of the creation of the UN. And and uh, so go there and do that. Also listen to his interview on the Road to Now with Bob and Ben, their friends of the show, and uh, Road to Now podcast and sign up, sign up for them. There's different nuggets you'll get from that. And uh, I I take it from delving into a figure like like him, who's kind of like invisible and and there's a larger story here. That there are these people in American politics that uh, we forget about, but yet they made large contributions. We we forget about them. I mean, I, I think there's a couple reasons here why Satinius is forgotten. Um, we don't celebrate compromise. We don't celebrate compromise that has imperfect results. You know, I mean, I make the argument in the podcast mm-hmm. that the UN is a massive force for peace. We we don't have world wars anymore. Our our global. Uh, Ca- war casualty ratio relative to the global population is is way down since World War II and the creation of the UN. Uh, and there are examples where you can point to where the UN gets involved in in disputes early, quietly. They don't become big news and is able to contain them. Now, of course, they don't solve every problem in the world, uh, not even not by a long no. shot. So there's a lot of dissatisfaction. The- there's a threat there too. You know, the threat that the Security Council can act 
is something that would have taken much longer to organize a world response. The whole reason it's World War II, the name, is that FDR. Of course, they had started to call the first one the World War. Why call it World War II? Because he wanted to make sure that propaganda bit there, that it's the whole world against the Nazis in Japan and their allies. That's that would, that would take a long time to organize if you didn't have a body set up. So absolutely agree. I mean, it's an important organization. So many things are done with compromise in the current political atmosphere. We hate it. We we pick apart the parts. Um, I just did one that will air before this one on um, William Rufus King, who was one of the senators actually acting VP behind the um, Compromise of 1850, who without him wouldn't, same thing. He was shuttling, shuttling all the parties and they're trucking their responses to people they wouldn't talk to otherwise, getting the bill of the Compromise of 1850 done. And it had some abhorrent parts that today we would look at it with shame. We do, like the Fugitive Slave Act part. But it also created a free state on the Pacific and the hope of a free West so it's 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 crazy, but there's another well, example. I, I think the compromise of 1820, 1850 are one of the big reasons why compromise has a bad name. I mean, when, when you look at the annals of American history, you know you want to you want to talk about the things that had great dramatic positive impacts right away, not these awkward things that allowed really horrible aspects to continue on for long stretches of time. Uh, <laughs> so it, it it doesn't have a storied. Uh, at least today doesn't have a story element. I think there was a time when Americans were more impressed with themselves that they've compromised so many times over the course of history. But this is the time when people were not as uh, as sensitive to um, the racial oppression that went on in the country. And we're trying to sweep that under the rug as much as possible. Uh, so, you know, compromise is never something that's going to be perfect. And there's always going to be aspects of it that are uncomfortable and outright bad. But if you don't do them at all, what what are you left with? Uh, and I think the fact that the UN compromise is inherently imperfect does not lead one to wonder what's the great story behind its, its creation. And I think on top of that, the fact that Tinius never had his own personal PR machine, never had an, a, an image of a grand uh, reputation amongst his peers. Uh, you know, he he dies. Soon after all this, at a very young age, and when he dies, it's right when communist revolution in China is happening, the Berlin Wall is going up. The notion that the UN was going to bring about world peace was not on people's minds. People were basically looking at the UN as something that was ineffectual in the, in the wake of this uh, rise of communism and, and the onset of the Cold War. So there, was, there were no victory laps at that moment. There's no obituaries heralding his role. And even proceeding that point, the guy who gets the Nobel Peace Prize for the creation of the UN in 1945 is Cordell Hull. It's not even Edward Satinius, uh, <laughs> because Hull was involved in the initial drafting of it. Hull's memoirs basically take a swipe at Satinius implicitly, saying, "Yeah, you know, you know, San Francisco, that's not what did it. It's it's Dunbar and Oaks. You know, it's what we did before Dunbar and Oaks that got this done. You take away, um, you take away that, you're left with just you know the." Uh, the, 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 you, what we did was the trunk, not the branches, essentially what, what he said. My point is, sure, you, 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 you gotta get the trunk set up, but if you don't do the diplomatic hurdles, if you don't, if you don't cut through all of those sticking points, then, you know, then the tree dies. Uh, and 
and Satinius never got the credit for all that work. And and you know, and part of that story, that surveillance story, you know, wasn't even uncovered until you know fifty plus years later. And by t- and soon after that, you have the whole Edward Snowden revelations, where people are not looking at surveillance as some sort of wonderful thing, and obviously it has its inherent uh, icky aspects to it. But in my opinion, Satinius was doing it not to be manipulative, not to violate privacy for the fun of it. He was trying to identify problems and address them before they got out of hand. And that's why that's why intelligence, that's why diplomatic intelligence occurs to try to help people make make good decisions. All great points. Well, um, besides what we talked about today, anything else that uh, strikes you people should know about uh, Edward Centinius? Um, well, I, I, I think that understanding his story, I think, helps people better look at modern politics in a multitude of ways. I, I think if you're looking at a, a cabinet post, like I, I, there are people today who were saying you know, mm-hmm. Xavier Becerra has no proper experience at health and human services. He was just a congressperson. He's not a health industry executive. Well, I mean, sure. Uh, but that doesn't mean he has – he may have attributes that work very well in that environment that are not obvious to the naked eye from – you know, miles outside of the Beltway. I mean, might not. I mean, I'm not arguing that any schmo should be get any kind of position. It's all going to work out okay. Uh, but it's just hard to assess what someone's attributes are going to fit for a job at a particular time. I mean, there's plenty of times where this would probably would not have been a good Secretary of State. But the things that he had to do in that moment, he had the right personality type to do to execute with. You, as Thomas Campbell said, he wasn't a man of ideas. But he was a man of action. He didn't know how to get deals done. He knew how to talk to people. He had—he was a personable guy, uh, but he had the right judgment to know when to do a deal, when to stand your ground, uh, when to be when to be determined, when 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 to cut cut your losses. You know, he was very good at that, and that you can't know that intimately. And mind you, I don't think FDR knew that. I don't think he had any sense that that's what he was getting in Satinius. I think he just wanted a yes man, but it just so happened that he had those latent attributes. So I, I, I think people should be more careful when they're judging people from afar because you, you just can't know uh, stuff like that. And democracy is good for a lot of things, but not uh, not personnel um, evaluation. And this isn't – this is the biggest part of the story, but there is a bipartisanship aspect to this. Uh, the, F, the FDR and Satinius put together a bipartisan delegation to San Francisco. Wilson uh, was not bipartisan enough, and that hurt him uh, uh, you know, fatally in the terms of the League of Nations. FDR did not repeat that mistake. He made sure to have prominent Republicans there, including Arthur Vandenberg. Most know- Vandenberg was a Michigan senator. Republican who had flipped mm-hmm. from being an isolationist to an internationalist. There were a lot of isolationist Republicans at the time. Uh, World War II changed a lot of those minds. And Satinius and Vandenberg had a very good relationship, not at the beginning. Vandenberg, like a lot of people, thought Satinius was out of his league and should not be running point in San Francisco and was very uh, concerned uh, how that Argentina, Argentina conversation was going from the onset. But he grew to respect Satinius along the way and defended his actions to his fellow senators when they were confused by how things were going based on press reports. And I, I think even today, as polarized as, as things have become, and I'm not saying everything is, is as simple as this, but having bipartisan agreement allows for big changes, big reforms 
to be durable. I mean, in the case of the UN, you literally could not ratify this treaty unless you had bipartisan support. The numbers demanded it. Uh, you know, now you have a case where people were, we're talking now in uh, March of you know 2021, where there's a lot of talk about changing the filibuster and is there a way for Democrats to cover Republicans out of the loop altogether? Uh, and maybe they can do that. Uh, but I, I think history suggests when you have that bipartisan cover for legislation, it's a lot easier for that legislation to remain and, and not be instantly, uh, you know, torn out from the roots. Yeah, big change requires it. I can, I remember cast I did during the time that the then ACA, now they call it Obamacare, was being passed. Incredible Passages was the name of my cast. I gotta find it. I can't even find all of them anymore. <laughs> there are people who are like, Bruce, I have this old cast. I'll give it to you. Oh, thanks. But somewhere from the 2009, 2010 period where it's incredible passages and it's like, you look at, um, Medicare, the New Deal legislation. People think the New Deal. They don't realize that there were people like George Norris on the scene who were Republicans, that Wallace, Henry Wallace's father was in the Republican administration. There were a lot of, you know, uh, uh, FDR actually used bipartisan, especially to get around some of his conservative Southern Democrats. And, uh, but that essentially in, in any big legislation, yeah, you're going to need some bipartisanship, even if it's virtual. And by virtual, I mean Medicare actually c- comes out to be a bit virtual because what Lyndon Johnson did was incorporate a, uh, Republican proposal. I mean, a little bit like Obamacare, except that I don't, that's a little different because they, they pulled back like, years to to pick up what had been some republicans proposal you know bob dole and them and maybe more of a faux proposal uh made during the time of the clinton health care and added into make obamacare have some of those provisions this was lyndon johnson grabbing a bill right off the floor and saying okay um medic medicare as the in the kennedy Johnson 1960 platform was simply hospitalizations. Lyndon Johnson adds doctors at the request. So either if you actually participate together in a room or if there's no room, but you just have virtual bipartisanship, something's got to happen for big legislation. It's really hard to pass it. In fact, I think uh, the Medicare story, that's actually a podcast I want to do for when America worked because Wilbur Mills, Mm -hmm. who was the House Ways and Means Chair, he's, he's the guy. That you, you have these other Republican proposals out there, and then the, the American Medical Association had something, if I remember correctly, and they were there as to be alternatives, say ours is better than yours. And Mel said, Well, I'm just gonna shove them together. <laughs> I'm just gonna make my bill even bigger and dare you to vote against your own proposal. And that and that ended up and that ended up boxing him in. But if I can go on a slight um digression, do it, it, do it. It, it, just to give you a little bit of a window into you know how I got to this place and why I'm even doing this podcast at all, you know, one of the f- first big piece of freelance writing I did, it ended up in the New York Times, and it's a piece called How Liberals Win. I wrote it in the wake of Obamacare and trying to tease out, why did this pass and Hillary Care did not pass? What's the big difference here? And the big difference in my mind was Obama was bargaining with the insurance industry, bargaining with the pharmaceutical industry, whereas the Clintons were, were fighting them. And in fact, the insurance lobby were running, you may recall, the famous Harry and Louise ads uh, denigrating the bill. Mm-hmm. Those ads, and if you re- watch them, they seem so quaint and so tame. But at the time, they were considered yeah. incredibly powerful, these middle-class couples struggling to pay their bills because of Clinton's health care plan. Uh, and those ads were running before the bill was written. 
they were so convinced the Clintons were out to screw them. They said, we got to we got to kill this from the onset. But they said to the Clintons, hey, if you guys start talking with us and compromising with us, we'll pull the bills. And the Clintons would not meet with them. They wanted to beat them and they couldn't. Obama diffused some of that corporate opposition by meeting them halfway. In fact, the pharmaceutical companies, they put in millions of dollars into ads with the Harry and Louise actors <laughs> replaying the Harry and Louise roles <laughs> Did not know that. in favor Did of the bill. They, they weren't like they weren't like the greatest <laughs> ads in the world. But it's like the ads made it happen. But the point is that they put real money into it and there wasn't a unified corporate opposition against uh, Obamacare. And so I, so I wanted to write the article and explain all that. And as I was getting into it, I said, well, I got to explain why was it different for FDR? Why was it different for LBJ? Why could they fight the corporations and Obama didn't have to? And I read a bunch of New Deal history and Great Society history. And I, and I came away with, wait a second. They did bargain with corporations. They did those deals. But, but we don't oh, talk about it at all. There, there, no side has an incentive to share those stories because they don't serve anyone's ideological narrative. And that, and I, that just sort of got me on this massive, you know, history rabbit hole. Like what, what else don't I know? What else have I been lied to about? And, and so after I finished <laughs> with FDR, I went into Truman I, and I came across a line about Truman in the UN. I was like, well, how'd the UN happen? And that's when I started going on the UN rabbit hole and here, and, and here I am with Satinia. So that's, that's how this really all, all began for me. That's great. So everybody listening, got to go to When America Worked. That's Bill Shares podcast. Sign up. You won't be disappointed. You got to, you know, first listen to this Stentinius, and he's going to get into some others. Give him patience, just like you do with me. I don't come out with an episode like every Sunday night, all right? <laughs> you know, when you have to do historical research, guys, this this yes, takes these, some these time. Are, these are laborious but podcasts. Also, I imagine that there's another website that you have, or some of your your journalism is. Uh, well, I, I do keep a new a website called Shareable S C H E R A B L E I dot com. I, I can't promise you that it's fully up to date with all of my work, but uh, uh, I am writing regularly for the Washington Monthly now. I'm a I'm a regular contributor at Real Clear Politics, and I am a contributing editor at Politico Magazine. So uh, you can find a good deal of my of my stuff there, and I'm also pretty active on Twitter at Bill Share uh, at Bill Share. Bill, thanks so much for coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Wonderful to talk to you. Hope we can do it again. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank Bill Share. Go ahead and subscribe to his podcast, When America Worked. And uh, go check out his website. Remember the Patreon, patreon.com slash MHCBUYP. And thanks for listening.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.